Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the Observer's Notebook podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. My name is Tim Robertson. I'm the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the Alpo. Thanks for downloading and listening. This podcast today is a continuation of the 75th anniversary, the celebration of the 75th anniversary of the ALPO. So it's going to be an exciting one today. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start off by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the Alpo, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast and never want to miss an episode, please subscribe. And now, episode 139. And we're going to celebrate anniversary of the Alpo. Enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook Podcast, where we're celebrating 75 years of the ALPO. And with us today, we have longtime uh, member and astronomer, Dr. Clay Sherrod. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Tim. Glad to be here. Now, before we get into it, why don't we have you just give everybody a little bit of introduction about yourself? Well, uh, first thing is I've been in astronomy now for about 53 years. Um, we started Arkansas Sky Observatories, which obviously is in Arkansas, uh, it, right at 51 years ago. We celebrated our half century last year and uh, started out modestly and actually one of the very first organizations that I uh, participated in uh, by invitation of uh, Walter Haas was uh, the AOPO. Hmm. And uh, it, to me back then, it was quite an honor. We did things the old way. You know, it was all old school. We didn't even have cell phones. We didn't have computers. We... Uh, Everything was done by uh, uh, telephone and mail. Uh, it, it, it was old-time astronomy still. We were observing in the cold. We didn't have computer-operated telescopes. We were uh, blessed to have something larger than 10 inches of aperture to use. And uh, it, it, uh, lots, uh, lots has changed. That's true. That's true. That's true. Now, you're also quite the accomplished author. Uh, yes. I, I Well, I say accomplished. I, I've written a lot. I don't know. <laughs> If that makes me accomplished or not, but I, 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 one of my uh, 
absolutely obsessions is writing. I write constantly. I write poetry, short stories, written a couple of novels that have been published, written 37 books, most in the sciences, uh, pretty much in all the branches because my science background is uh, quite diverse. Uh, I have uh, a lot of uh, background and research uh, experience in uh, cellular biology, uh, microbiology, of course, archaeology, astronomy, paleontology, environmental sciences, geology, uh, uh, meteorology. And one of the reasons for that, people keep ask me, you know, why, why are you so involved in so many different disciplines? Uh, you, can't you concentrate on one thing? <laughs> I guess the answer might be no, maybe not. But my answer has always been, and I think it's a good one, at least it gets me out of a, a lurch trying to explain all this, is that early on when I was a, a young man, one of my ambitions by going into cellular biology was to find out the root of life, you know, like so many young people want to do. Uh, when I was uh, before college, I had a laboratory in my home in, in high school, and I actually did uh, microbiological experiments on cell growth and, and various mutations of wow. cells and uh, got fairly proficient at it. But I was trying to find out the number one, the division between the plant and the animal uh, kingdoms and, and what, uh, you know, what actually kept us from crossing over in the evolutionary scheme of things. And also at the same time, I wanted to try to find out what exactly sparked life. Um, at that time uh, I was, I actually had a, uh, a couple of years later, back in 1971, I just happened to meet a mentor <clears throat> who was actually very instrumental in the path that I took. And I was fixed to go in a different direction in sciences, but I met Carl Sagan. Mm. And uh, Carl was very, uh, he, he and I hit it off very well. We had a, a very nice, casual conversation and we had the same interest. He was always, uh, of course, always obsessed with uh, the connection that the human species has with everything else in the living world. And, and I, I, of course, had that uh, quest to try to find out exactly how did all this start in terms of biology. And uh, so thanks to him, I, I pretty well set out. One of the things that he instilled on me, and I think he preached it pretty well until the day he died, was that um, you can't understand astronomy and you can't understand biology. You can't un understand cosmology unless you also try to understand all the other sciences. Astronomy of all sciences requires that you know something about all the other sciences too. You have to know some chemistry. Mm -hmm. You do need to know some biology. You have to know physics. You have, you have to know mathematics. And uh, it, all, it all ties together. So uh, by understanding that, the quest for knowledge, I guess, required me to sort of go back to school, which I actually did. Uh, I have advanced degrees in astronomy and archaeology and environmental sciences mm -hmm. and uh, try, just simply trying to find out how, how uh, and trying to do it the right way. Uh, for example, in archaeology, I was asked by the Arkansas State Archaeologist to participate in some archaeological research involving archaeoastronomy, which is the alignment of the sun and moon and, and planets with various features that the prehistoric people would erect like a uh, sticks, you know, they put up great uh, logs to signify the rising and setting of the sun, perhaps at solstices, and then mounds, prehistoric mounds up and down the Mississippi River Valley that were actually uh, habitats for civilizations. And I got very involved in that for about four and a half to five years and published two major research publications in that. And um, in order to do that, I got into other disciplines of science and literally had to go learn archaeology. 
but mm-hmm. fortunately I had the state behind me and they, uh, they, they clipped me through essentially all of the requirements that I needed to be an archeologist. So, uh, we became an archeologist too. And, and, uh, and even though I haven't practiced it in many years, I still carry that with me, but, uh, I, I've done a lot. I've published a lot in all those realms and, uh, it's been exciting. It's been a rich life. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I met Carl Sagan in the early seventies at UCLA. He was oh, doing yeah. a lecture. He was doing a lecture series out here, and an amazing man. Well, Carl is the one that he. That Carl actually had a job lined up for me about the same time you're talking about uh, when the Viking mission went to Mars. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the first. This was one of the first probes we sent to another planet. Most people will remember this. Mars, we assumed, might be rich with some type of subterranean life microscopic life and my background was key it seemed to be ideal to to be someone that might want to participate in such an experiment and he encouraged me and actually had a job lined up with jet propulsion laboratory in pasadena and uh i went out there to interview and i I liked it they liked me i was just a kid and uh my wife met me out there a couple of days later and flew out and we started driving around pasadena looking at real estate (laughs) (laughs) We found a house for $470,000 after living in a really nice house here in Little, in Little Rock, Arkansas, for, that we bought for $70,000. That was quite a mansion at that time. Mm-hmm. It was four hundred fifty dollars or $470,000 in Pasadena, and it was condemned. It was on the corner oh, yeah. of a lot in downtown. It was condemned, and it was a two-bedroom, two uh, one-bath. No plumbing, no floor. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Oh my and, and so we decided that uh, probably Arkansas was going to be home for the rest of my life. Yeah, but you, if you would have bought it, think it would be worth today. Oh, absolutely. It would have been <laughs> a gas station probably or, or a Taco Bell. <laughs> yeah, very good. Now, uh, you're also an artist? Yes, I've, I've done a whole lot of artwork. Uh, I do. I specialize in multimedia and uh I do it when I have time and when the urge hits me. My my claim to fame, I guess, in art, other than just doing portraitures and so forth, was a, a project called the Genesis Project, which uses the uh, um, uh, book of Genesis in the Bible. Uh, I'm, 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 I don't know quite how to put this. I'm not a Bible thumper, so to speak, but I also believe in God and believe in creation. Mm-hmm. And as a scientist, it's very difficult to confront people. I've given lectures all over the North American continent and many subjects, but one of them being astronomy. My most difficult uh, conference that I gave a lecture to was the Southern Baptist Convention in Atlanta, Georgia. 2,000 people, all Baptists, most of them women. And I'm up there trying to talk about uh, uh, evolution and, you know, the, uh, the natural creation of the universe. You a glutton for punishment? It was. It was, it was <laughs> punishment. But I did, I did tell them at the very beginning, at the outset, I told them, I said, I want you to understand that I believe in God. I believe that God created the universe. And I believe in the Bible. I said, but I do not interpret the Bible word for word. Mm-hmm. I said, if you take the book of Genesis and you look at every statement, you can back it up scientifically. In fact, most of the natural creation that we take into account in the physical world, there is something in Genesis that explains that. And I've been called a test as it doesn't explain the dinosaurs. They don't mention the dinosaurs. Well, they do. There's actually a passage of the great giants disappearing off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. So every little bit of that was, was contained in the book of Genesis. So I wanted to spark people to use their imaginations about the fact that we can accept creation, God creation, 
and we can accept creation in a natural form scientifically based on what we see in science. And because you look at either one and you either dispute the Bible or you dispute science. No, you, you can actually accept both. So I set about doing a series of artwork instead of trying to explain to people that would challenge people to use their own minds by looking at it visually. And each piece of art has an explanation sheet that goes with it, that it shows something very abstract. For example, that God created light. Well, it wasn't quite that simple. And the, and, the, and the piece of art shows that. It's very dramatic. Not only did he create light, but he really created a lot of complexity scientifically in color. And light had form. It wasn't just a energy. It had form. It was light balls, which essentially, of course, would, would be photons scientifically. And so what it does is just simply challenge people. Uh, long story short, the Genesis Project was 37 large artworks that... Uh, I finished up in, uh, oh gosh, I guess it was probably the late 1990s, early 2000s. And uh, it was very popular. Published a book on that, and it was on exhibit at the National Cathedral for a while. Oh, and it's been, it's been talked about and used as, uh, as study uh, material for colleges and universities all around the world. That's great. Was it in oil or watercolor? Or what? It's, it's kind of a multimedia. It's kind of funny. I use whatever I have to. Uh, if it's something, of, uh, there's one of the uh, one of them where there's an atomic bomb blast behind a city going off at night. It's a very abstract scene, very, uh, very dark, uh, a tree dying from the radiation. You can tell. And yet there's a city in the somewhere in between the blast and the tree, which is the living part of the earth. And I wanted to show that the city was uh, was, was uh, vibrant. It, you know, the blast was going. You could see the atomic cloud, which is a pretty eerie looking uh, uh, representation, but the, the windows in the, in the skyscrapers in the city, I had trouble drawing those to make them look like they were really illuminated windows at night. So I, I pondered over that for weeks and finally got out an exacto knife and a microscope and I cut out little tiny squares hmm. of a label and use that like a label you would put on a file. Mm -hmm. a white label and cut them out and use the tip of the exacto knife to put them into place on the art and they stuck into place and i would arrange them and hence all the all the uh skyscrapers have illuminated windows so i use whatever i have to use that's amazing is the genesis project available somewhere online to look at or uh yeah the book is called the genesis project uh, it's on okay. amazon and uh barnes and noble uh, and it's uh but it is called the genesis project by me and uh, it's it's I, actually my website, uh, org has a link that's called Docs Art. Okay. They can click on that and they can see almost all of it right there. As a matter of fact, that's I'm glad you brought that up because it's free. Okay. I will add a link to that in the show notes so everybody can go over there and check it out. And the web page itself, it's pretty cool. You've got a lot of great things on it. There's a lot of guides. A lot of people yeah. Yeah. click the links at the top and look at the guides. There's a lot of really good, useful stuff for observers, uh, practical things. I, I've written a couple of books that were nothing more than me making notes so that I, I wouldn't forget how to do something. And, uh, you know, you'd learn a skill or learn a technique. Drift alignment just comes to mind. And, you know, you you write it down and, and make sure that you know all the details. And so eventually those evolved into chapters and books. And the guides have all that stuff in them. People can get all this information without having to buy anything. It's all on the arcsky.org uh, website. 
It's, it's kind of interesting. I run the training program for the ALPO. Yes. And for years, you know, people say, well, I want to calculate central meridian. And I give them the math, how to do it, like uh -huh. Jupiter and things. And then, you know, I have a link to your website. I didn't even know it was your website, but I have a link to your website <laughs> in the instructions uh, oh, in yeah. the training prag. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I didn't even realize that until later. Yeah, it's really exciting. And, you know, once you've done that, and that's one of the things that, I hope we have an opportunity to talk about a little bit is that, you know, we're starting to see a transition away from people doing practical things like that. Mm -hmm. Calculating central meridian is essential for determining the right, rotational right. rates of the different, for example, on, on Jupiter, the different zones and belts and the features within them to be able to determine the rotational rates to find out differential velocities. And a lot of people have steered away from using the wonderful photographs and wonderful observing techniques that we've got today uh, and just kind of going after pretty pictures. And mm -hmm. I really hate to see that happen, but it is happening. People don't even record the central meridian anymore. Uh, so many times, uh, very little detail is written down about what they're capturing on film. And yet their images are nothing short of spectacular. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of those amateur astronomers that I put my eyepiece in the telescope first before I do anything else. Yeah. Now, al along with art, I guess along the same vine, you're, you're, you're a musician and composer. Yeah, I was a professional musician at the age of 14. Oh, oh. I, I was the youngest, uh, youngest person in the United States to actually carry a musician's union card. Uh, my dad was a trumpet player. My grandfather before him was a trumpet player for the uh, Ringling Brothers Circus. Oh. And uh, so it came naturally. And I was a trumpet player and was very accomplished by the time I was 14. And uh, I played with uh, Al Hurt. I played with Frank Sinatra uh, and Buddy Rich, a lot of the old uh, big big standard groups, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears <laughs> as a, as a fill-in when they traveled sometimes. So, yeah, I have a lot of experience in music, too. But I, I hung the trumpet up when I was the age 39, which was uh, a long time ago, and never touched it again. I just decided I didn't have time for that anymore. Oh, I was going to ask you to play us a little tune. No, I, my, my trumpet's right here, but I don't think you want to hear me blow it. <laughs> okay. I'll take your word for it. All righty. Now let's talk about the Arkansas Sky Observatories. What is this? Give us an introduction. Well, it, we, were, we've, we were founded in 1970, set up the first observatory actually up here on Pettigene Mountain in uh, West Central Arkansas in 1971, and actually for the primary reason to study Mars, because Mars in 71 was going to be at its closest point since 1956. And Mars fever was still at a high pitch, even though we had, you know, realized that there were likely no canals and, you know, no, no green people up there. So we were still interested in it. And uh, I had read a lot of it and I was kind of a Mars student and uh, that seemed to be the topic. So we built the observatory and we were ready and we had a very, very good year observationally uh, examining Mars. I still have all my first drawings. We could draw a lot better. Back in 71, people could use an eyepiece and see far more visually mm -hmm. than even the world's largest telescopes could photograph. So, you know, the drawing, the capability of drawing uh, what you see in these fleeting glimpses when the seeing would steady up perfectly. We've all, we've all been there. We've seen that, those moments right. where you just takes your breath away and you think, oh, God, I wish that would happen again. But, it, you know, it never does. But uh, that's when the observatory was founded. And now we've got five different observatories scattered over Arkansas. It's sort of a complex. And I can run them all from one central office or if I go to 
Hawaii on vacation. I can run them from there, but I tend to want to be in them. I, I really enjoy still being uh, directly, uh, you know, in uh, at the telescope. Now, I don't like to be in the cold, so I do operate them remotely by a computer, mm-hmm. but um, uh, it, it's it's got a long history. It's been nonstop since 1971. Now, do all the observatories have the same types of telescopes in them, or what? what are they no, they're all different. Uh, there's uh, a couple of the observatories are similar. H41 and H45 are similar, but they have different telescopes. Um, uh, they all have different projects, and um, there's one of them, one of the five that's actually located right next door to where I am here. That's devoted strictly to visual observing for the public so that people can actually have a telescope to come look through. Mm. Now that's, that's been put uh, on hold because of COVID of course, but uh, it's still an excellent place for teachers and select groups. It's not big enough for large groups of students, but we do accommodate people who are really seriously interested in astronomy because without somebody to motivate you, you're not going to stay with astronomy for very long because it is a very competitive science. That's very true. That's very true. Now, are they, are they, all you have the one that's for visual observing, but the rest of them are all robotic observatories. Yeah, uh, well, even the, even the one for visual can be robotic if I want to operate it that way. But uh, yes, all of them are robotic. Um, they uh, there's there's nothing really manually that I I would have to do. The domes open themselves. Uh, it has climate control and weather control. If if it senses clouds or moisture, it shuts everything down. The focusing is is uh, computer uh driven uh not too much to do of course it's all go to um they when you have that many observatories and and some of them are getting some of the equipment's getting on the old side even though i maintain it pretty well uh it it does become problematic and thank goodness i've learned to be a fair mechanic and i can work on this stuff and keep it operating otherwise and, and that's another reason for me to be here because uh, inevitably, if I'm not at a location and operating one of the telescopes, it's going to break down or hit the pier or something like that and do damage. So uh, I do prefer being there, but I definitely prefer the robotic operation. Now, how, how, how are the observatories managed? Are you, you manage all of them or is there a subscription yes, to use them or how is it? Yeah, we, well, uh, I do offer uh, it for, uh, you know, select people, grad students and so forth from different colleges around the area uh, in states surrounding Arkansas even, it's open for, you know, grad students to use for research projects. And uh, one of the things that I do for for different uh, colleges is I will plan different graduate programs for students who are struggling, trying to come up with a good graduate study uh, focus uh, in astronomy or astrophysics or something. And I'll design something uh, focused in, you know, in astronomy, typically solar system if possible, and 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 give them an option of one or two, and they'll choose one. And they do have the option of using the telescopes up here at no charge. I never charge anybody for anything. Um, I don't uh, I don't charge groups to you know to come in or to do programs for. I've given around twelve thousand presentations in the past fifty two years, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that's that was pretty tiring. There was a couple of <laughs> period of time where it was very demanding, and I just simply can't do it anymore. So I do turn them down now. I hear you. Now you mentioned earlier about it's important to have a mentor type person when you get started in astronomy to keep you the interest going. Was there a person, or was there was there an event that first sparked your interest in astronomy? 
Well, at a, at a very early age, there actually was. And it, 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 this seems a little serendipitous probably to most people, but I was actually, I think, around eight or nine years old. And my grandfather had a small farm. He was an educator. He was a principal of a school in Ozark, Arkansas. And uh, he had a small farm up there. And I would go up in the summer times and work for him. And uh, we were out one night on the picnic table. We always did. And we're looking at the sky. And he was very knowledgeable about the sky because one of the classes he had to take was astronomy back in college, when back in the 1920s. And uh, we were sitting out there looking at the sky and watching, I mean, just, just casually leaning back and watching and enjoying our, our conversation. And I looked up and I saw the Pleiades and I looked, I pointed to him. I said, look at there. I, I can see the little dipper. <laughs> and he well, immediately didn't want to correct me, but he, he did. He said, no, that's not the little dipper. And he first, he pointed to the little dipper for me. And, you know, like I, I kind of didn't understand why it was so important, you know, but then he went back to the Pleiades and he wanted to explain it to me. He told me it was a star cluster and about the distance on it. And, and he was right on around 750 light years away. And uh, he explained that uh, that uh, that what we're seeing now was, you know, from 750 years ago, that it, it had taken light that long to get here. But the most interesting thing he told me, he was, he was such a knowledgeable, well-rounded guy. He said, he told me the legend of the Chinese people, the ancient Chinese people and the Pleiades, what, what they perceived as it representing mythologically in the sky. And then he told me about the American Indian, the Native Americans, and what they perceived it to being in the sky. And darn if it wasn't the same thing. Hmm. It, it got me into the Seven Sisters of Industry, which is the Chinese version. And and uh, then we had in the Native American, we had the uh, uh, the seven tasks of, of essentially the squalls and and what you know what you did around camp, wherever camp might be. But it amazed me that two different cultures that were totally unassociated, did not probably even know about each other, and living halfway around the world from one another with no means of travel between the two of them. It amazed me that they both came up with the same legend mythologically of what the Pleiades represented. Mm -hmm. And it just, I, I don't, I can't tell you why, but it just really fired up my interest in the sky. It did. It, it made it more mystical. It just seemed like it's sort of a common focus for the human race. And that stuck with me from, from then on. That's wild. It, it, it is. Even when I look back today, I, I, it is wild to me. I, I, I think, how did that happen? How yeah. did that happen? What's the most memorable astronomical event that you've seen? If you had to pick one. My goodness, there's been so many and so many are so, they're all different. You know, that's the neat thing about astronomy. Everything's mm -hmm. different. Let me tell you though, one of the things and the APL, uh, ALPO members will appreciate this. I like change. I want to see something change. <laughs> I love cataclysmic variables. I like novas and supernovas, but I love comets and asteroids that tumble through space. I love to be able to watch them move. I love to measure their light variance. Uh, I love to watch comets explode or separate or fragment. I love to watch Jupiter get hit, you know, different things <laughs> like that. Um, the most memorable thing, I guess, that I, I, I would have to say probably Comet West back in 1975. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, I, I, I just can't forget that. Now, Comet Hayakataki, when it went over back in the uh, mm -hmm. uh, late 90s, uh, that was the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. It's huge. 
but it was enormous and it moved. You could actually see it move across the sky. Yeah. yeah. And I went out the, the unfortunate thing, it would probably be uh, without a doubt, my most memorable, but it was, it was a period of time. I, I don't remember the time of year for some reason, but it was a period of time where it was cloudy every single night. It was visible from Arkansas. I got one opening through the fog and I got a view of it. It was the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning or three. And it was so, so incredible. I, I went in there and woke my family up and got them out there to look at it. And even they were amazed. I mean, mm-hmm. you could actually see it in its tail moving across the sky. It, and it was moving sideways relative to the tail, which we thought was so cool. <laughs> and uh, But I, I'd probably Comet West. It was just such a remarkable uh, visual experience. It was beautiful. It was. Yes. That's, that's wild. So how did you get involved with the Alpo? Um, well, I, I met Walter Haas, uh, very early on the founder of ALPO and I knew Chick Capon and, uh, my, uh, uh, one of my goals, I thought early on after having met Carl, uh, he, he mentioned Lowell observatory because they were, they were more progressive, Mm -hmm. you know, Lowell, they were, they were the guys sort of, uh, out there they're, you know, they're willing to take a chance and they're not, uh, they're not afraid to come up with a new idea, like, like Lowell's uh, uh, speculation about the canals. And, and Lowell Observatory has the reputation of being a little bit more uh, experimental and, and willing to try and take chances. So um, I, it, he, he recommended that, that uh, uh, I meet, meet Chick, and I did. And he and I hit it off really well. We became very close friends. Even till after he retired, he moved up to Missouri, just north of me here. And I visited him. He set up a little observatory up mm-hmm. there shortly after. And we visited many times. But uh, uh, he and I went to many of the ALPO meetings, uh, some of them in conjunction with the Astronomical League. And uh, I think there was one even in conjunction with the AAVSO simply because of convenience. And I, I don't remember what year that was. But um I, the, the ALPO seemed very important to me because I, after having my first look around as a young astronomer or just an observer and wanting to really do science, I realized that really in order to do, to, to keep your interest going, you had to do something outside of just looking. Eventually you're going to see every galaxy. Eventually you're going to photograph everything that's worth photographing. And, you know, so going back to this idea of seeing change, I wanted to watch what happens on Mars. I wanted to keep up with the meteorology on Mars. I wanted to watch the currents on Jupiter and find out what kind of interactions and maybe make some sort of correlation between solar activity and things like this. So um, the ALPO was a very active group. Uh, it was definitely for observing. It was definitely recreational, but they did have a scientific component that I was interested in. And uh uh, I really believe that me getting involved with some of the people that I did, we were able to put a little bit more stress into the science end of it. Uh, you know, the the uh, for example, the asteroid group in the ALPO was was a little bit weak uh, in early times, and yet uh, there was a, a, a asteroid occultation group uh, that was very active, and then you had IOTA, which was mm-hmm. headed up by. Uh, uh, David Dunham, and uh, still is, yep, and yep. they were very interested in asteroid occultations, and I was very active in traveling with that group wherever we had to go with Paul Maley down in Houston and and other other members, and, and we would set up and 
you know, try to contribute. But I think it also this, uh, I don't know, desire that I seem to have to want to communicate all this to the public. Uh, we, we tried to fire people up to want them to do it, too. And I think it helped add a little bit to the science of ALPO. That, that's very true. That's one thing I, that drew me to the ALPO as well is you know, amateurs doing observations and then they get recognized in journals. As, oh, that's, I remember yeah, the, absolutely. I remember and, the know, first time I, one of my observations was in the journal of ALPO, I was probably 17 years old and I was giddy as a schoolgirl when it absolutely. was published. Yeah, yeah. You want to frame it, you know, yep. it. Uh, and it, it, it is important to everybody. We all want to have something that we accomplish. And yet we also want to, we want to do it the right way. You want to accomplish yep. it, but you want it to be uh, qualitative, not just quantitative. And and that's something I've always been, I, I don't give a hoot. I, I, I was going to put it another way, but I realized <laughs> we're on a podcast here. But I don't give a hoot if, if, uh, if a guy's got 100,000 observations of some variable star. If they're not accurate and if they're if they're yep. over observing, you know, every minute, uh, it doesn't mean anything to anybody. It, in fact, it actually throws the science off. It skews it, uh, you know, to the to the opinions and observational uh, personal equations of one observer. So, uh, you know, it, I, I like a person who wants to get into it and contribute and be proud of what they put in and and always be ready, you know, always be ready to change. And that's one of the nice things about having a private observatory like Arkansas Sky. Um, I can stop anything I'm doing at any time and start another project. Uh, not that I don't have commitments, but I can do a lot of things at the same time. But um, I do, you know, if, if something comes up and I think, well, that's something I really need to study and look into because it goes right along with what I, I want to do or what I want to accomplish. I can pretty much stop and just start, uh, you know, start studying something new for a while. And that's happened many times in the past. Yeah. And I, I like what you said about if the observations aren't accurate, they really don't have any meaning. And that's one thing I stress, really in, I stress in the training program. I mean, I get because we focus only on drawing, drawing and observing. There's no astro, yes. there's no imaging yes. in the training program at all, because I feel the longer you observe, the better observer you become. Oh, absolutely. You're able to see more detail and things like that. And I'll have students come through the program who their drawings are beautiful, but I could tell there was artistic license taken too. And they, you don't, you can't see these things with a six inch telescope, you know? Absolutely. So I, I will back them off. I'll say, you know, draw what you see. That's don't exactly draw what right. you think, think you should and see. I th yeah, that's right. What you think you can see. And, and uh, one of the programs I used to give when I traveled to colleges, and, and lectured on, on planet observing was actually about drawing. I set up a little uh, project where we had a projector in the front of the classroom or the front of the small auditorium. And I had images of, uh, these were uh, hand-drawn images in color so that there could be any, any type of the Purkinje effect or any other mm -hmm. color blindness issues that might come to light for people. But I would have images of a planet. It might be Mars or it might be Jupiter. And they would be sort of to scale at, at a distance of, let's say, arbitrarily 60 feet. It would be about the size Mars gets at maximum as seen in a telescope, you know. So, and it, I would have people draw it. Yep. And, and uh, you know, in, in an audio, in a, in a uh, auditorium setting with everything dark and they had flashlights, just like observing outside. And I had them use a uh, uh, paper towel tube. I, I would carry them with me and everybody got a paper towel tube. They had no idea what they were about to do. And they would stick that tube up their eye so that it would be concentrated vision. 
and they would draw Mars or they draw Jupiter. And it would be amazing what they people think that they see. Yep. I've and done the exact same thing in lectures, and it's it's pretty wild. It is, but it's a real good learning lesson for the person that takes the test. Yeah, I would then shake the screen, too, to show them how seeing was terrible. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I never thought about shaking the screen. I, I figured their their nervousness would be enough. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now, within the alpha, well, let's back up a minute. You mentioned Chick Capon. Yeah. I only met Chick a couple times, and he, he makes an impression on you the first time you meet him. He sure does. High talk, energy. Talk to me about Chick. Do you have any stories about Chick that you can share? Uh, let me see. Professionally, um, I've got one, but I can't share it. Um, and, and that was about a convention. He showed up and I was waiting for, him. I was going to bring him from the airport to the hotel or no, it was dormitories. It was up at Creighton university at, a, at an ALPO meeting. And Chick was one of the guest speakers. And I was, I was supposed to meet him there. And, uh, I did meet him at the airport and I can't tell you anything else because it, even at bless his heart, I'm not going to talk about him, but, uh, um, he would be very embarrassed if I said this, but, um, uh, that was probably the most noteworthy and funny. He and I laughed over and over beer many times. Uh, more, most of my stories is when he moved to Missouri, as far as actually, uh, I sat down with him many times and observed. He was one of the most dedicated observers I think I've ever mm-hmm. met. Uh, he did it. He did the, the drawing bit. Everything that he did at Lowell, uh, you know, he was sort of a, a, a volunteer slash associate observer. And he did it the kind of like what we were just saying. He did it the old school way. He did it by drawing. And uh, he he literally, of course, he, he published a lot about different yep, uh, yep. drawing techniques, filters using color uh, uh, techniques on, on Mars and Jupiter. And uh, he was a specialist at, at drawing Mars. And he and I probably discussed that more than anything. But, you know, the funny thing, uh, one thing I will tell you so that people will understand him a little bit better. Uh, he was one of the most happy-go-lucky uh, people that I've ever met. He was down to earth. And a uh, little bitty guy, if anybody had never seen him, a uh, small fellow, always wore a little English driving cap. Mm-hmm. And he, um, uh, when he moved to Missouri, he really all but got out of astronomy. He didn't think he was going to do that. He built a small observatory up there on his property. He bought, I'm thinking it was 12 acres out there in Missouri, out in the, out in the rural parts. And he and his wife moved up there and they became uh, farmers. They kind of went back to the land. And that's what he wanted to do. And he uh, put up a 10-inch telescope, I believe, and uh, rarely used it. And I talked to him one time. We and I visited off, and I went up there, and we had dinner together. And and, uh, he said he just really couldn't find anything that uh, he was interested in doing that he thought would be of any merit. And that was one of the things about Chick. If if he got into something, it had to mean something to it. There had to be a result. He he just, uh, he would entertain people. He would be gladly open up the observatory and have guests come in because he loved being around people and he liked being the center of attention. I'll put it that way. <laughs> he was a neat guy. Very, yeah, very yeah. fine individual. There was. Now within the Alpo, you held a couple positions, uh, Jupiter coordinator and Saturn coordinator. I did. I did. And, and I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, the, at that time, there was a lot of transition. Uh, we, we standardize observing forms um, and uh, the, the need for very accurate timing. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, not that the ALPO was, was, uh, was poorly run, but there was a lot of accepted observations that really should never have been simply because 
they weren't recorded properly in terms of uh, good time logs and, uh, you know, the need for central meridians. And mm-hmm. I go uh, in Saturn, uh, uh, Julius Benton was the head recorder at that time. And uh, uh, I got interested in one of a, uh, a phenomenon known as the bicolor aspect of Saturn's rings. And he and I collectively, along with one other individual, really studied that for a couple of years, which is where at certain positions in its orbit around the sun, the rings are are uh, illuminated. Uh, how do I say this and not really confuse you? Of course, they would be illuminated differently in various aspects of the orbit, but they would be illuminated either more dimly or brightly than you would expect. I'll put it that way. Okay. And in various colors, the reason we call it the bicolor, in various colors, yellow and blue particularly, um, the, the, this, this phenomenon would, would go away. And we assumed that it was due to the ice crystals. And I still assume that that is what is happening because the phenomenon has been recorded many times since. But that was one of the things that I did with the uh, um, Saturn section. And, of course, I was heavily involved in, in most all the other ones, you know, maybe not the sun and moon, but uh, I, I tried to help out where I could. Mm-hmm. Now, have you seen the Apple evolve since the early days of your involvement with it to now? I think I think it has evolved uh, similarly to almost all organizations in that um, people are more respectful of the science of what they're doing. Um uh, it, it there's two aspects to it belonging to a group like the AAVSO or ALPO or any of the other uh, specialty groups, IOTA. Uh, one is learning. Uh, it's a great platform to learn uh, what you're doing, and you can learn while observing. In other words, you can contribute and learn at the same time. And then the other aspect of it, uh, tremendously, and this is where I've seen the biggest shift, is the science that's contributed by the members. Yep. And uh, sometimes it, it'll it'll take a plateau, but and that's what I've always stressed. I have gotten into many I won't use the word arguments, but but very lively discussions with other ALPO folks time and time again about the need to keep a consistent science coming out of it. Make sure that we keep archives. Um, one of the things that needs to be done more than anything else is a collective archive. For example, that can be searched by Central Meridian, let's say of Mars. Uh, we, we, we badly need uh, where we can go and reference it just like you would a, a, uh, a, a world globe where you can access at, at any, any time in history of the ALPO, any contributed drawing or photograph, you can access a certain central meridian and find out how the changes have taken place over a hundred year period. And uh, we started doing that time and time again, and it would get dropped. And that's, that's something that I, I feel very strongly that needs to be done. Yeah, we are, we are working toward that right now, uh, coming up with a searchable archive for all the sections. Absolutely. And we had one on the arcsky.org website for many years, and it, it caused more bad feelings with ALPO than it, than it helped. Really? And it was not, uh, there was no, yeah, there was no uh, subscription. There was no sign up. You didn't have to do anything. It was open to any ALPO member who wanted to, contribute an image of whether it be drawing or photograph. And it got, it, it did get some uh, uh, resistance. Uh, just, I'll be the first one to say that. And I, I'm, we're not sure why. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a very, very workable system. And if you put some, an observation in, and if you put the time and date, 
it would automatically compute the central meridians for you of any object and enter it, and you didn't have to do anything else. That was it. And it was so simple, and yet people were afraid of it. And I don't, I, I do not understand why. So people we don't took, like change. Yeah, they didn't like change, and that that was around around the year two thousand, two thousand to two thousand five. We kept pushing to implement it, and it just didn't happen or wouldn't happen. Wow. So, so let's go back. What was your very first telescope? Oh golly, just like everybody else back when I was just a pup, I had a one of those little three and a half inch Gilbert telescopes, the little black ones. Yeah, and yeah, uh, and I don't remember much observing on it. Uh, I'm sure I took it up on the hillside and pointed at stuff and looked, and I saw a star, and I would see another one, and then I'd see another one, and I'd see the moon, and I couldn't find anything else. But my first appreciable telescope, uh, I waited and I saved. I've, I've been very frugal all my life, but I saved and I got me a six inch Unitron. Oh my! And it was a it was a fine, fine, beautiful specimen of a telescope. And uh, I, I was able to get that in 1970. Wow. Now, how about a dream telescope? If you could have oh, dr- money wasn't you, an object. I, I can name that in a flash. My dream telescope is the 24-inch refractor at Lowell Observatory. <laughs> yes. I tell you what, everything about it, from the history to the quality to the manufacturing, every aspect of that, not just the telescope, but the observatory and the land that it's on. Anyone who really wants to get chills up their spine about astronomy and astronomers need to read about Percival Lowell and Lowell Observatory. Uh, uh, that, is, that is one of the, to me, most inspiring stories. Uh, the man was brilliant. The concepts that he had were brilliant, even though so many of them were wrong. Uh, he pushed the envelope. There's no doubt about it. But I, uh, and that telescope, what a marvelous piece of equipment. And I spent the, some time at Little Observatory on, on the 24-inch telescope, and I actually had to refill the tires <laughs> with air <laughs> that rotate around the dome. So, yes, yeah, yes. I've, spent, I've spent some time there. Yeah, it's an amazing <laughs> it, scope. It, yeah, it really is. It's a unique facility, to, to say the least. Very, very cool. Very cool. So off subject here, if 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 you... Where would you go to dinner at your favorite restaurant? Where's your favorite restaurant? Here's the deal. My wife and I have concluded that our every favorite, and we had some good ones, seafood restaurant, uh, Mm -hmm. Greek, I love Greek food. And uh, every restaurant that we really like, and and they suddenly know our names when we walk in and know what we like, (laughs) they close or they burn down or a hurricane hits them. Every one of them. my favorite restaurant, um, man, I couldn't tell you. Um, I, I love Mexican. Yeah, it closed. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite Mexican place is closed. I don't have a favorite restaurant. Uh, my, my favorite Greek restaurant is closed. But I would say as far as if I want to go and really enjoy a good meal with a camaraderie that goes with it, it would be a Greek restaurant. Okay. And, uh, I don't know why. There was a place in Pensacola, Florida, for all my buddies down in Pensacola who are AOPO members, and there's lots of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dainty Dell in Pensacola, in the downtown area of Pensacola. Uh, most fine, the, the fellow used to be a shrimp boat captain, and uh, he's uh, full, uh, he's deceased now, but full blood Greek, and he got me uh, hooked on Greek food. And uh, that, so that, that would be my favorite type of food. But my favorite restaurant, I don't know. It's not fast food. I, no, can, I no. can tell you that much. 
That's good. That's good. So what's your current observing equipment? Oh goodness gracious! Let me. Other have, than the observatories, do you have other uh, things that you? Just oh I've got, yeah, I've got I got so much of it, and so much of it is sitting in, in shacks, waiting you know, either waiting to be uh, given away or whatever. Uh, we've got a, a half a meter, uh, a twenty inch plane wave that's used for as, asteroid uh, photometry and astrometry, and that's over at the observatory on the north side of this mountain, Pitygene Mountain, where I am, and it's a it's a nice scope. Uh, my problem with it is, is that in Arkansas, and, you know, I, I told you I had plenty of opportunities to leave, and uh, I don't know if I should have or not, but uh, Arkansas, just like my restaurants that all closed, the weather and the climate conditions have gotten worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And if you have an open tube, uh, big reflectors, for example, of any type, you're really prone to atmospheric uh, uh, pollution getting on the optics. And uh, so I'm, I'm finding myself using it less and less simply because it's very difficult to clean, but it, it's, uh, it's used for primarily for uh, asteroid and comet uh, astrometry and photometry. It's got instruments that do all that measuring. It's all computerized. It's a nice scope, beautiful telescope, very high resolution. And then I've got a, uh, a, uh, a 16 inch RC that's uh, here in this observatory and it also is used for asteroid and, and, and uh, comet work, but also for um, NOVA, cataclysmic variable work. And uh, I have a, a catalog. I have a, actually a, a new book out that's an uh, uh, index of uh, galaxies. It takes all the brightest galaxies, NGC galaxies, and there's about 300 of them. And it shows a picture of them taken through this telescope. And then it gives it, they're in negative. And, and what it is, it's a guide for anyone who wants to try to find supernovas in other galaxies to be able to use it and look at it and say, well, that star that I'm looking at right now is not on this photograph. So I must have found myself a supernova. And so it, it, uh, uh, it, that, was, that took about five years to put that together because it re required doing a, a, a photograph of about 300 different galaxies all to the same saturation level with the same telescope at the same scale. Hmm. And then I've got uh, visual telescopes. We've got a 10-inch refractor, which is great for planets. Uh, it, it's one of those things that the, the public, you know, that's the one they want to look through. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they look at it and you think, I want to look through that one. And, uh, and it, 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 I can accommodate on that. I can certainly, uh, you know, put a visual back on it and, and let people look through it. And they're, they're kind of blown away. Uh, it, it is three-dimensional when you look at Saturn or Jupiter. It's interesting. I mean, speaking to you reminds me why I love astronomy, because it's a it's a hobby where you can be into comets, you can be into meteors, you can be into planets, you can be into supernova. You seem to have touched them all. I mean, I guess the Arkansas observatories are also monitoring near Earth asteroids as well. Oh, that's that's predominantly what we do. Yeah, and I've got you know we I've got a list of fifty five thousand of them. Uh, we're Harvard designated. I've got five different designations and uh, uh, I do maybe about 155 a night. And those are sent directly to uh, the Harvard Smithsonian Minor Planet Center. Uh, each morning they go out automatically off the computer and they update the orbits and so forth, which I can update the orbits here. And so the, the near misses and all the things that we normally see, uh, I will get early notifications and get notifications of these things coming in. And that's kind of pretty exciting. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, some of it is uh, confidential. Some of it is most of it's not. But if we see something that we think might actually hit us, 
we're not supposed to actually talk about it, which I think is a little ludicrous, but um, it's supposed to go through the Minor Planet Center first. So what are you currently passionate about? Well, right now, I'm passionate about getting one of my telescopes working properly. <laughs> I, I have struggled for the last five nights. I've got, I've got one that's kind of skipping the drive. And I'm one of these people I can take anything apart and put it back together again better. And I cannot fix it to save my life. I have no idea what's wrong. But when I'm doing observing, I think my, my true passion is, uh, uh, I'm, uh, uh, I, I would think near-Earth objects, the asteroids. Uh, I love... I love planets. I love the change and I love the, the atmospheric studies on Mars, but obviously Mars is far away. Now you can't really see get a good look at it. Jupiter and Saturn are both so low in the Southern sky for me. Right, right. It's very difficult to observe them. And even people that come by visitors, they're sort of disappointed because you're looking through all the thick air of Arkansas in order to be able to see them. So they're a little disappointed in, in uh, what they see. So, I, I, you know, that's the nice thing. And back to your point, that's the great thing about astronomy and amateur astronomy. I can switch from whatever I'm doing to something else. You know, if the if the conditions aren't good for looking at Mars or there's Mars is too far away, I don't have to look at Mars. I can, you know, start looking at asteroids again. So, it, uh, you know, if a bright comet comes by, I can focus, uh, pun intended, on that. Very good. Very good. Wow. Is there any... Anything else you'd like to share with uh, our audience about yourself or your experiences? No, uh, not in particular. I probably talked enough, but uh, they're certainly welcome. We do have a Facebook page, Arkansas Sky Observatories, and it's very active. Uh, things that are newly discovered and things that are bogeys that might be coming in to hit us or new comets, uh, new discoveries, or just discussions on astronomy. It's open to the public. Uh, all you have to do is sign in and I'll approve you. Uh, I'd really encourage people to sign up for it because it's kind of an instant notification of things happening in the sky. Uh, if, you know, if Jupiter gets hit by a comet again, it, I've got something on it there. Uh, that's kind of the quick way of learning things. Then we've got the website for learning and it's got, if people will peruse it and go through there and look at the tabs and explore it, there's a lot of information for learning on that Arkansas sky observatory. It's again, it's www.arcsky.org is the address on that. And they can certainly visit there. If someone wants to contact me directly, uh, they're more than welcome to. I, I'm not accessible by phone, uh, but I, I, I'll, I'll be happy to answer any emails. And it, it's Clay at tcworks.net. That's D-R-C-L-A-Y at tcworks.net. That sounds great. And I will add those into the descriptions below in the show notes so people can just peruse it that way as well. That'd be great. And and, and I'm welcome. Again, the, the website, uh, there's never any calls for anything, but I welcome anyone on the website and, and certainly on the Facebook page, join up. And, uh, it, you know, if nothing's going on, you may not hear anything for a few days, but then all of a sudden something seems to, it happens in clusters. You know, you'll see a flurry of new supernovas or mm -hmm. comets or asteroids and, and it'll be a buzz. Well, Clay, this has been great. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. You, sir, are a true renaissance man. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, I certainly appreciate the opportunity. I do have to say that uh, in, in my mathematical mind, I'm sitting here with the equation renaissance equals old. And that, that is, <laughs> I didn't that say is, that. <laughs> that. That is true in both cases. I uh, that's what I've been called as Renaissance, and I've also been called. You're getting older, Clay. So, um, 
But I, I appreciate you uh, letting me be part of this. And it's good to speak with folks with the AOPO again. It is. And thank you very much. You bet. Thank you for contacting me. Well, that'll do it for this exciting episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again, want to thank Dr. Clay Sherrod for coming on the podcast as we celebrate 75 years of the ALPO. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. It doesn't take that long to do it. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, and yes, this podcast is now available on the ALPO YouTube channel. Head over there and subscribe. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you'll receive one year's membership to the Alpo and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer for their generous support. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the Alpo is in the show notes. You can contact me at email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.